Well, God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today, and thank you so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring that service to you, wherever you are. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to the New Testament, Habrida Chadasha, the New Covenant, the New Testament, to the book of John, Asefa Yochanan, to the book of John, chapter 1 today. That's where we're going to be, and we'll also put those verses up here for you in the video, just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about the unexpected Messiah. You know, last week we talked about the book of John as the bridge between the Tanakh, the Old Testament, as you would say in English, and the New Covenant. And today we showed that the Mashiach, the Messiah, Mashiach is how we say it in Hebrew, Be'evrit in Hebrew. And so we showed today that the Messiah was the one who was sent by God to be the bridge between God and mankind. The book of John, the bridge between the New Testament and the Tanakh. The Messiah as the bridge between God and mankind. That's the way this all works out. And our message this week is in the book of John, like I said, in chapter 1. But we start in verse 14. Now, we actually covered verse 14 last week in our message. But instead of starting in 15, I want to go back to get the context of verse 14 again as we launch off and go all the way down this time to verse 28 in the book of John in chapter 1 of the book of John. I'll read it to you. It says in chapter 1 of the book of John in verse 14, we'll start there. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, because he was before me. And of his fullness, that's of Christ's fullness, we have all received, grace for grace. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moshe, Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying that the law wasn't truth and, and, and from God. It was. But the law was meant as a school teacher to show us that we're not good enough to keep the law at all times and we need God's mercy. And so that's why verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18 then continues, Now, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. That's speaking of the Messiah, Yeshua. Verse 19 then says, Now this is a testimony of John. John was sent to be the messenger before the Christ, you see. This is a testimony of John, is what verse 19 says. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? Verse 20, he confessed. He did not deny it, but he confessed, I'm not the Christ. If you're asking me if I'm the Messiah, that's not me. That's what John said. He was very truthful. Verse 21, and they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. They said, are you the prophet? And he said, no. And then they said to him, well, who are you that we can give an answer to those that sent us. You're not Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Who are you then, they're saying? So we can give an answer to the folks that sent us because we'll get in trouble if we don't come back with some information about you, you see. And so he goes on to say in verse 22, they're asking him, what do you say about yourself? And he said in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make stray the way to the Lord as the prophet Yeshayahu said, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him saying, well, why are you baptizing then if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah nor you're, uh, you're not the prophet? And John answered them saying, well, I baptize you with water. But there stands one among you already standing among you. You don't know who it is. It is he who is coming after me 
is preferred before me, he's preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to loose. And these things, it says in verse 28, were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now let's look at something before we get into this real quick. They ask him if he was the Christ, number one. Well, are you the Messiah? They asked him if he was the Elijah, the prophet. They asked him if he was the prophet, and that's the one that Moses had spoken of way back in the book of Deuteronomy. They asked him if he was the Christ because multitudes of people were coming out to the wilderness to be baptized of John. And you say, well, baptism, that's a Christian thing, isn't it? No, it's, it's not a Christian thing. It's a Jewish thing, actually. You had the ceremonial mikvah that they would put with the steps leading down into the water in this little pool that they would make. And every Jewish village in Israel had one. In fact, it was usually the first thing that was built in the Jewish villages in Israel. And they would have this little place that was filled with water and steps leading down into that. And God had told them to go down into the water to cleanse themselves and rededicate themselves to the Lord. So they said, well, we're going to go down these steps on this side because we're dirty and we're going to go down and cleanse our sins and be cleansed of this unrighteousness. We'll dedicate ourselves, our lives to the Lord. And then when we come back up, we don't want to go back on those steps because we dirtied those steps up when we went down into the water. So just on the other side to this side, as you're looking down into the mikvah, they had the other steps coming up out of it. So you use these steps on the right-hand side to go down into the water, dedicate your life to the Lord, and come back up on the clean steps. You don't want to come back up in the dirt that you already are trying to leave down there, you see. So that was the thought, and that's what they were doing then. That's the way those mikvahs were in those days. But they were that way in those days, but somehow now they just use them for women at certain times of the month and everything for ceremonial cleansing of just the women. And you see them around the larger synagogues. What went wrong? What changed? Did God change his mind? No. You see, it's just the tradition of man changes things after a while. But they're still there. So why am I mentioning this? Because that's the roots of baptism. It's not Christians. Christians aren't the roots of baptism. Yehudim, uh, Jewish brothers and sisters, Shili. You've got to see this, okay? Think it through. Who are you going to believe? You're going to believe the opinions of all these other people who live today who can't even agree with one another, by the way? Or are you going to believe the written Word of God? I'll tell you something. You honor the Talmud? Look in the first half of the Talmud, the Mishnah Torah. The Mishnah Torah even says that the written Word of God is the most important thing. The traditions of man? Don't worry about those. You honor the written word of God. Hadavar Elohim, the written word of God, the thing of God. You honor that. That's the one that deserves the honor. That's the one that has the priority, the preeminence. Don't listen to traditions because traditions change over time. But God is perfect. Think about that. God is perfect. He doesn't need to change because perfection is perfection. It doesn't change because then it wouldn't be perfect anymore. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we see this little interaction with John, and they're asking him if he's the Christ, because all of these people were coming out to be baptized by John. And like I just said, that baptism, you can call it what you want, it was a Jewish thing. That's what I'm saying. Then they say, well, okay, you're not the Christ. You're telling us you're not the Christ. You're not the anointed one. You're not the Mashiach, the Messiah, as we would say in English. Are you Eliyahu, Hanavi? Are you Elijah the prophet? Remember the Passover ceremony? At the end, you set a chair, you set a cup for Elijah, and you have the child look out the door, and you see if Elijah is coming. He said, no, he's not coming. Well, there you go, maybe next year. Because there was a prophecy in the Tanakh 
that spoke about the time when Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, would come. And the Lord said, and I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and notable day of the Lord comes, you see. Well, John the Baptist, it was written in the New Testament, came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So for what that's worth to you, think about that. But they're looking for Elijah the prophet. And they see this man who's attracting multitudes of tens of thousands of people to come out to the wilderness. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the chief priests heard about him. And they're political people, you know. They're political people and they're always looking to safeguard their power. They're not really concerned if it's from God or not. They're concerned about staying in power. Sound familiar? Kind of like politicians today, maybe? Ah, can't be, right? Uh, maybe. Well, they're the same way. They see all the people going to John the Baptist, and they send some people out and say, you go out there and check him out. We want to know what he's all about. He might be a threat to our power, you see. He might be a threat to our position. We've got a good thing going here. We're making a lot of money. People respect us. They call us, you know, righteous and all these other things, and they bring their money to us. And, you know, and we don't want to mess that up. It looks like you've got a good thing going there. So you guys go out and find out what John the Baptist is all about. You come back and tell us so we can know if he's a threat to us or not. That's, I think, what they were saying. So they say, are you Elijah then? You're not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? Maybe that's why all these people are coming out to see you. And Elijah had the spirit and power of God upon him. Maybe you're Elijah. And he says, no, I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. Then they said something interesting. They go, well, are you the prophet? Now, a lot of Christians don't understand this. When they say, are you the prophet, they're speaking about a, a, a verse in Hasefed um, Varim. Varim is how we say Deuteronomy, or in Hebrew, Deuteronomy. And when Moses said to the people of Israel, he said, now, listen, I want to tell you something. This is important. He said, the Lord your God shall raise up from among you, your brothers, a man who is a prophet like unto me. And it will come to pass that whosoever does not hear the voice of that prophet will be cut off from among the people. In other words, they would be taken out of the rolls of Israel. In fact, they would be cut off from the land of, li of the living. Whoever does not listen to and obey the words of that prophet that the Lord your God is going to raise up to you, Moshe, Moses says to the people, says, whoever does not listen to the voice of that prophet and obey him, he will be cut off from among the people. So the Pharisees, through the scribes and those who studied the scriptures, they figured there were three important people that were coming that the Tanakh, the Torah, had spoken of. First of all, of course, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ. And then Elijah, because we had the prophecy about God sending Elijah back before the coming of the Lord. And then they said, well, are you the prophet? And they're, they're speaking of the one that Moses spoke about. Are you the prophet, you see, that Moses spoke about? The, ones, the, the prophet that we have to listen to, that we have to obey, or else we can die if we don't listen to him. They didn't know who that prophet was. By the way, of course, Jesus, Yeshua, was and is the Mashiach, the Christ and the Lord. He was not Elijah, but yes, he is the prophet. He's the one that Moses spoke of that the people of Israel must obey, must listen to, or else they're in danger of being cut off from the land of the living, cut off from the people. That's the word of God. That's right from the Torah, you see, in the book of Deuteronomy. That's right from the one you, you trust, Moses. The one that you study in the synagogue. And Abed Knesset, that's the one you study, Moses. And he's the one that's warning us, my Jewish brother and sister. Now it says in these verses then, and went on to talk about baptism, and we covered that. So now we got all the way down to verse 28, and it said these things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. 
That seems to be an area north of the Sea of Galilee, what we call in Hebrew, Hakaneret. It's actually called in the New Testament the Kinneret at one time as well. But Hakaneret is the way that the Jewish people say the Sea of Galilee. Ha is the, and Kinneret is just the name given to it. Hakaneret, and that's what they say. It's the Kinneret. And that's what they say and give a name to for the Sea of Galilee, you see. Now let's talk about these scriptures for a little while. And we'll get into our point for today really quickly. You know, it's obvious that the Messiah is a central theme that runs through all the scriptures. Of course, the Jewish people, in their faithfulness to safeguard those scriptures, the scriptures of the Tanakh, they made it possible for all peoples everywhere to learn about the one true living God, the creator of all things, the Jewish God. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you see. And so they are the one who preserve the scriptures and thank God for the Jewish people's faithfulness to carefully preserve the scriptures because now through the scriptures we know about the Jewish God. We know about the one true living God. Christians don't believe in three gods. We've covered that before. But yet God is far higher than our understanding. Can he be three and somehow one? Remember last week we covered the creatures before his throne had four faces, had four wings, had, had wheels below them, and the wheels were covered with eyes. And can anyone describe how those creatures are? How many minds did they have? How did they communicate? How did they think? What's going on there? Did they have a brain? Is it different? Did they have four brains? What's going on? And I said last week, if you can't understand the creatures that Ezekiel mentioned that were before the throne of God. In the Tanakh, he mentioned this. If you can't understand those creatures, how can you tell me you understand how God exists? Can he be different than you? Guaranteed, he's different than you. Can he be just like you and no more? No, he is higher than you. He says in Isaiah, his thoughts are higher than your thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. His ways are higher than our ways as the heavens are above the earth. Can God be different than you? You better count on it. He is different than you. Now he made us in his image, but that's not talking about a physical thing because the Bible says that God doesn't have flesh and bones and blood like we do, you see. He is spirit. He's eternal spirit. He made us in His image. That means we have eternal spirit. What does that mean? We were designed to live forever. That's what that means. Now, as we read through the scriptures, the scriptures that the Jewish people gave us, it seems that the Jewish people, my people, missed the Messiah when He came. I am it. It's just the truth. Let me ask you a question. It's the question that every Jewish person must ask himself. You drink your coffee, you're going to need it. It's a fairly short question, fairly short discussion. But it's really important how you answer this question. It's going to make you think, my Jewish brothers and sisters, it's going to make you think something that you've never thought of before. It's going to make you think about something that you know in your heart of hearts that you must have an answer for. And here's the question. In the Tanakh, in the book of Haggai the prophet, chapter 2 and verse 9, God says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the glory of the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now, we're going to find out what that's talking about just real quickly. The background. The first temple, the king that Hamelech Shlomo, King Solomon, had built, had been destroyed 70 years earlier before Haggai chapter 2. Some of the older men that were watching the second temple being constructed became pretty depressed. They didn't have a lot of material to build this second temple temple, everything had been destroyed. The rocks were all torn down. The gold was gone. Just a bunch of broken rocks, very little metal, little or no gold at all, no fancy decorations. This new work that they were trying to do didn't look anywhere near as good as the former temple, the temple that King Solomon had built 70 years before when it was torn down. 
But God gave the people encouragement. He told them as they were working on this second temple and trying to put together these rocks in any way that they could so that they had something that would serve as a temple. God gave them encouragement. He told them that the glory of this latter temple, the temple that they were working on, a temple that we call T2 or Temple 2, this one that they were working on, he said that the glory of this latter temple, the one they were working on, would be greater even than the glory of King Solomon's temple the one that King Solomon had built for the Lord. Now that was in the days of the prophet Haggai. Many years later, Rome was going to come along and take over all the countries, and Israel also was captured and brought under the Roman Empire. Herod was a Roman leader over Jerusalem, over Jerusalem. Now he was a vicious man. He was a murderer. He was a very evil man. But I'll tell you something. He was very skilled in architecture. He really knew how to build big, beautiful buildings. And he built Israel a new temple to somehow try to keep them happy and to encourage them not to rebel against Rome, you see, because they were rebelling against Rome all the time. So he didn't call his temple a new temple. He said he was only going to remodel the existing temple. Here's why. Because he didn't want to make them angry. He didn't want to instigate a rebellion where they would rise up against Rome because they felt like Rome was tearing down their temple. So Herod just kind of lied to them a little bit. says, are you going to like what I'm going to build? But don't worry, I'm not tearing everything down and building a new one. I'm remodeling the existing one. So all those years after Haggai and the meager starting of that second temple and it wasn't very beautiful. I, you know, it didn't have all those things and the gold in the holy place and all. Herod's temple, though, was indeed very beautiful. Evil man, but he certainly knew how to build buildings. And the Jewish people still referred to that one as T2 or temple number two. They didn't see it as a new temple because Herod told them, it's not going to be a new temple. I'm just remodeling the one that you have. So they go, oh, well, okay then. I guess it's okay. And so they still considered it the second temple. Jewish people still referred to it as the second temple. Here's what I'm saying. They still refer to it as the second temple. Therefore, it was the temple that God was referring to when he said that the glory of this latter temple will be greater than the glory of King Solomon's temple. That's very important. Because that prophecy in Haggai 2.9 was referring to the second temple. And so the Jewish rabbis were waiting all those years for the glory of that second temple to be even greater than the first temple, King Solomon's temple. And yet years later in 70 AD, the temple, T2, Temple 2, was destroyed by Rome in response to a Jewish rebellion. Not one stone was left upon another. That was prophesied by Yeshua in Matthew chapter 24, by Brit Chadashah in the New Testament. Then that new temple was laying there on the ground in ruins. What happened? Where was the glory that God had promised back in Haggai chapter 2 verse 9? Now logically speaking, there's only four possible answers. Now I want you to understand something before we get into those four possible answers. When God said the glory of that latter temple would be greater than the glory of the former temple, remember that when King Solomon built the first temple, with the day that was dedicated, the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord filled that temple so thickly that the priests could not even minister there. And you ask yourself, whoa, what could be greater than that glory? Well, if God did it again, but only even in a more powerful way, that's the only thing that could be greater. Well, listen, though. Here it was, 70 A.D. The temple was in ruins, lying on the ground, not one stone left upon another, exactly like Yeshua had said in Matthew 24, several years earlier, 30-something years earlier. And in 70 A.D., there it was, lying on the ground in ruins, not one stone left upon another. And they hadn't seen God bring a glory about in that second temple that was anything like the glory that was in the first temple. And they knew, though, that Haggai was a prophet. They knew that the Spirit of God had spoken in Haggai 2, verse 9. 
So now they're wondering, well, what's going on? God said that the glory of this temple was going to be greater than the glory of King Solomon's temple. And look at it. All these rocks are broken. They're on the ground. It's all just leveled. It's nothing anymore. It's torn completely down. All these people in Jerusalem were murdered, killed by the Romans. God, what happened? And they're asking themselves, how could this could possibly be? Because God had given them a prophecy and God never breaks his word. My brother and sister, Yehudim, my Jewish brother and sister, consider this. There are only four possible answers for what they were seeing as that temple was lying on the ground. Only four possible answers and three of them are absurd. Let's get into them. I'm just being logical with you. I'm a scientist by background. Let's just be logical. Let's just be logical here. What could have possibly gone wrong that that prophecy didn't get fulfilled? Well, first of all, and these aren't realistic to me even. Uh, even the, the way I think, they're not realistic to me because I know the scriptures just like you do. But first of all, God could have forgotten. Ah, slicha shechakti. <laughs> I'm sorry, I forgot about the prophecy that I said back in Haggai 2 9. You know, I, I don't know, I've got a lot of stuff to do. I'm holding these galaxies in place, holding the universe, and all those people down on the earth, and now, oi, vey, what a mess. He could have said something. No, God doesn't forget. He doesn't forget. In fact, the only thing that he's ever said he's forgetting is that he forgets to remember our sins anymore when we come to him and are forgiven. But you could say, well, God forgot the prophecy. Well, of course, that's not Tanakhi. That's not scriptural. That's not biblical, you see. God doesn't forget like that. Well, okay, let's talk about the second possibility. And keep in mind, I'm not saying these are viable answers. I'm just saying, just covering the bases. Just like in baseball, there's four bases. First one was God forgot. The second one, uh, this one, I really don't like this one. God lied? No, of course God didn't lie. God is not a man that he should lie, he says in the Tanakh. God is truth. God is light. God is pure and his word is true. God does not lie. And lying is a sin that he commits people to hell for. God does not lie. So he didn't forget and he didn't lie. Okay, what's the third possibility, Pastor Stephen? Third possibility is one that you're going to easily get, and that's someone more powerful than God had to come along and destroy the temple, took the temple away from him and said, and destroyed it and said, here, take this. I'm just covering all the bases. You see, that's third base. That's third base there. Oh, someone came along more powerful than God, destroyed the temple and because they didn't like God. Oh, of course. That's not the case. No one is more powerful than God. Hu habore. He is the creator of all things. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim be'et ha'aretz. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The immense power and display of majesty that God showed in creating those things, you see. And he holds them all together by the word of his might, the scriptures say. No one is more powerful than God. So no one came along and took it from God and destroyed it. God is the creator of all things. All other things, including the devil himself, are created things. None, no one, is more powerful than God. God didn't forget the prophecy. God didn't lie about the prophecy. And no, no one came along and destroyed the temple because they were more powerful than God. There's only one more possibility. We've covered first base, second base, and third base. What's that fourth possibility, Pastor Stephen? Give it to me. I'm ready. I'm not sure you are. It's a tough possibility. It's going to cause you to face some very, very important truths in your own heart. The fourth possibility and the only answer left is God did fulfill the prophecy and we missed it, my Jewish brother and sister. The possibility that God did fulfill that prophecy and we missed it. Well, you're saying the logic is solid, but that would mean 
That would mean that would mean that we were wrong. That would mean that God did do a mighty work there while the second temple was still standing and we missed it. We missed it. Now what could have been more glorious than that first temple that Solomon built when the Spirit of God filled that temple? There were 26 tons of gold in the holy place alone. It was a beautiful temple. It was a wonder of the ancient world. The day it was dedicated, like I said, the presence of God filled the temple so much we read about in the Tanakh that the, uh, the priests could not even enter into it to minister in it. What could be more glorious than that? Now some will say that uh, Temple 2 and Herod's Temple, it was more glorious because it was a bigger and grand architecture and Herod was a great builder and it was a great architectural achievement and that's what God was talking about, Stephen, and that's why it was more glorious. But you wait a minute. You cannot compare the size of a mere building, any building, no matter how much gold and silver are in it, to the presence of Almighty God. His presence is infinitely more glorious than all of creation combined. How much more greater is His glory than the glory of a building? You see? No, we missed it. So what happened? Why was the temple destroyed in 70 A.D.? Was it because of sin that God did not fulfill His prophecy? No, even though we are unfaithful, God is always faithful and keeps His word. He honors His word above His name is what it says in the Tanakh. Okay then, if God's word is true, you say, then He must have kept His promise and, and we missed it. We missed it. Okay, well now let's see. Let's think about this. What happened at about that time before the temple was destroyed? Hmm. Well, there was a man who many thought was the Messiah, and he was going throughout Israel doing great and mighty miracles, healing the sick, feeding the multitudes, even raising the dead. And near Oshalim in Jerusalem, it says that he would go into the temple every day and teach the people. And none of his enemies could answer his wisdom they were calling him the Son of God, and that would make him somehow one with God, somehow equal with God, part of God, ever how you want to say it, sent by God. That would mean that somehow God had visited mankind. And he was teaching daily in the temple in Jerusalem when he was there. That sounds pretty glorious to me, but we missed it. Some of the religious leaders were very jealous of him. They rose up against him. They talked the Roman government into crucifying him just outside the walls of Jerusalem, close by to that temple. This man that we're talking about, this Messiah, Yeshua, had claimed to be the Messiah. He had claimed to be the Son of God, thereby making himself equal with God. He had said, in fact, in one of the Gospels, that he and the Father were one. That's pretty clear. He and God the Father were one. He said that anyone who had seen Him had seen the Father. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the Messiah. He told in John chapter 4, He told the woman at the well that I who speak to you am He when she spoke of the Messiah. He claimed to be the Messiah. He, she was the first person that he told that. Then later he told his own disciples, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's pretty clear right there. He's the Messiah and he is God. He and the Father are the same. He was claiming to be God. Could God really be visiting mankind? Certainly elsewhere in the Tanakh and the Torah, God had become a man and visited Abraham Avinu, Abraham our father, uh, in chapter 18 of the book of Genesis, this happened. God visited Abraham with two angels. Abraham called him the Lord. Abraham worshipped him and he received that worship. When you try to worship an angel anywhere in the Bible, the angel would rebuke you and tell you to worship God. Instead, this man didn't rebuke him. This was the Lord who came down and was going to look Sodom over before he destroyed it. Came with the two angels. Abraham called him the Lord. He knew he was the Lord and he worshipped him as Lord. And this one, the Lord, received that worship. So can God become a man? If your theology says that no, he cannot, 
then you need to change your theology. Stop trying to change God's word to match your interpretation. Be humble enough to change your theology when you see what God's word says and proves you wrong. Be man enough to change your theology. Be a person of the Bible enough, of God's word enough to change your theology when you see that God has proven you wrong. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. But when you're proud and you try to lift yourself up by your own righteousness, God's going to make sure that you're brought low and humble. Better to be lifted up by the Lord and you humbling yourself than it is to be cast down by the Lord after you've tried to elevate yourself and call yourself righteous. Could God really have come in this man, Yeshua? Well, this man's life changed the civilization of the world more than any other person who ever lived. That's for certain. His life, in fact, split time itself into two parts. We, we call that B.C. and A.D. Now, I know the Jewish people don't call it like that, but you know what? Guess what? The rest of the world does. He changed civilization more than any person who's ever lived. And through believing on his, his name, hundreds of billions of people through the centuries have been saved and found true peace and consolation and hope in their lives. And mighty miracles, even to this day, continue to be done in his name. And without question, Yehudim, Jewish people, without question, my brother and sister, we have to admit, he is the most famous Jewish man who ever lived. In fact, he's the man who had been in the temple right before it was destroyed. It was his presence as God became a man to save us. It was his presence that made that temple more glorious than it had ever been before even more glorious than the temple that HaMelech Shlomo had built, the one that King Solomon had built. You see, God didn't forget His promise. God didn't lie about His promise. Nobody stronger than God came along and destroyed the temple. No, God did keep His promise. He came to His temple. The Messiah was God Himself. We'll talk about why that had to be in a little bit. The Messiah was God Himself and He came to His temple and we missed it. We missed it. But it's not too late. I want you to know. It's not too late to know Him. It's not too late to confess Him as Lord. It's not too late to be saved. And that's what our message is about today. Remember that the Tanakh prophet, Yeremiah Hanavi, Jeremiah the prophet, himself had brought the word of the Lord to the house of Israel in Jeremiah 31, 31. We covered it last week. And he said that the Lord was going to bring a new covenant to Israel in the house of Judah. And you go, Pastor Stephen, you know that no Jews believe in the new covenant. <laughs> I'm talking about the Tanakh, brother and sister, in Hasefer Yeremiahu Hanavi. Ivanti? Do you understand? We're talking about the prophet in the Tanakh that says the word of the Lord came to him and said, I am going to bring a new covenant to Israel and to the house of Judah. And in that verse, the Hebrew is absolutely clear. God calls it specifically Brit Chadashah. He says, I'm going to give a Brit Chadashah to the house of Israel, to Beit Israel and Beit Judah. Okay, I'm going to give a new covenant to Israel and to the house of Judah, which is exactly what Israel calls the New Testament today. Habrita Kadeshah. They add a ha on the first of it. Ha means thee. God says, I'm going to give you a new covenant, Brit Kadeshah, without the ha, Brit Kadeshah. And then today in Israel, they call it Ha Brit Kadeshah, the new covenant. Ah, uh, what are you going to do with that? I mean, you know, let's be honest here. Let's look at the Word of God. If the Word of God says it, let's say in our heart, you know what? I'm going to believe God rather than man. I don't care how unpopular it is. I'm, I don't care how many rabbis tell me this, how many uh, other people have their opinion about that, how it's not the Jewish thing to do. I've got the Word of God here. That's more important to me than any of that that they would say. I'm going to look in here and see for myself what it says. Did you know that you can understand the Word of God? We're going through it now. We went through 
כל הבית, הבית הספר בראשית. We went through all of the book of Genesis together. התורה. הבנתי. You understood it. We went through. You can understand. אתה יכול. את יכולה. You can understand what this means. You see. It's not hard. You can understand hapashat, the simple and obvious interpretation. And you know why you can understand it, brother and sister? Because God wants you to understand it. He made his word to where you would understand it. He was not trying to hide anything from you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to understand his heart. He wants you to understand his word. Because it not only tells you about him, And what he's really like. You don't have to listen to other people tell you about him. You can find out for yourself. It also tells you how you can be saved. How those sins in your life can be forgiven. That's really important. Because everlasting life is on the line. You can live eternally if your sins are forgiven. And the Messiah is the one who died for your sins. In atonement for your sins. He's the atonement for your sins that you need. And with him and only through him can your sins be forgiven and you be given everlasting life. So that's exactly what God is saying here. The day's coming when I'm going to give a new covenant to the house of Israel, to the house of Judah. And God was very clear there in Jeremiah the prophet when he says that this new covenant will not be like the covenant that he made with their fathers when he took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. Pesach. The journey from Egypt, the exodus from Egypt. When he took them by the hand and he gave them the law on Mount Sinai and he gave it to Moshe Hanavi, Moses the prophet. He's saying now in Jeremiah the prophet, he said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you and it's not going to be like the one that I gave you when I took your fathers by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. These are hard things for you to hear, but this is the word of God. You can't just ignore this. You can't just turn away and say, well, I don't believe that part of the Tanakh. Because if you don't believe that part of the Tanakh, you know what? You do not believe the Word of God. And God will hold you accountable for that. God said it in Jeremiah. There it is. Now, we have to, what we say, we have to man up. <laughs> and we have to deal with it. You can't just forget that you heard that. You've got to deal with it. You've got a decision to make. That's what I'm saying. Remember the four questions or the four answers, four possible answers? We missed it. Don't miss this one too. God was very clear when he said this. He said that in this new covenant, I'm going to write it on their hearts. In other words, when we give our lives to him, he'll make our hearts to where we want to obey him. And he gives us a desire to serve him. That's because we see how much he loves us and we realize that he gave his life for us as an atonement for our sins on that cross. And so we love him in return. When you see such great love, it makes it easy and it makes it natural to love him in return. And that's the new covenant and how it works hand in hand with the Tanakh, you see. God knew that man would not be able to keep He knew that man would not be able to keep the 613 commands of the Torah, but he let us try to convince us that we needed his help, his mercy, that we couldn't even remember the 613 commands. Let's well keep them every moment, every second, every year of our life, all the time. And if we ever missed even once, well, guess what? We're a sinner and we need salvation. He knew that we're not righteous. We're not perfect, but yet he is perfect. And to stand in his presence in his kingdom, we could not have sin because he's already committed himself to judging sin. And the Bible says the punishment for sin, the wages of sin, is death. But he didn't want to kill you. He didn't want to judge you. He wants to pass over you in judgment. And just like in Pesach, when he sees the blood of the blemish-free Lamb of God, Yeshua HaMashiach, on the doorpost of your house, your heart, he will pass over you in judgment. He doesn't want you to be destroyed. He wants you to live with him forever. But heaven is a holy place. 
It's the place of His throne. Sin can't come in there. And He wants you to be in the kingdom of heaven where you can live forever. Well, God saw this situation, but He knew how evil and incapable of doing these 613 commands all the time. He knew how our hearts would not be able to keep them all the time. And He understood how unrighteous we really were. But He wanted us to understand that we needed Him. So He let us try. Then God stepped in and offered His mercy for salvation. He took our sins upon Himself. He paid the debt that we could never pay. So that if we would simply believe in Him, we would be saved. Period. If we would simply believe in Him, we would be saved. Now that's the kind of compassion that inspires love in return. And that's what the Father truly wants from us, you know. A thankful love in return. A thankful heart. He wants us to recognize that He's good. And we would love Him in return. We love Him because He first loved us. And as we said last week, the Tanakh speaks a great deal about salvation. This Messiah that God would send to take our sins away so that we could be allowed into heaven and given everlasting life. It speaks a great deal about that. And just like the prophecies of the Tanakh speak and predict the coming of the Messiah and that God Himself would be the Messiah, by the way, the New Covenant tells what this Messiah did when He came. And that's how they work together. Prophecies from the Tanakh, fulfillment from the New Covenant. Prophecies from the Tanakh, fulfillment from the New Testament. They reinforce one another. They support one another because the Word of God endures forever. Flesh may fail and the flower of man's glory will pass away. But the Word of God endures forever. That's what it says in Isaiah the prophet. This Messiah, Yeshua, did things that only God could do. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He told the weather to be still. He calmed the storms. He forgave sins and He even raised from the dead Himself. Only God could do those things. And there were thousands of witnesses to these great miracles that Jesus the Messiah did. In fact, so many Jewish people were attracted to following Jesus that the Pharisees themselves were jealous and they complained that all the people were following Him. And that's why some of the religious leaders at the time plotted Jesus' death. The Jewish sage Rambam, Maimonides, who all of my Jewish brothers and sisters know of, gave us 13 principles of what it means to be Jewish. And one of them, Rambam said, I believe in the coming of the Messiah. And though he may tarry, I will eagerly await him. So you see, waiting for the Messiah and looking daily for him is one of the most important things that you can do if you're Jewish. And yet today, it's the thing that most people don't even make a part of their lives anymore. But the Messiah is the one who can take away your sins and give you everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven. So he's pretty important, wouldn't you say? Plus, believing on him will allow God to walk with you daily and be your guide, your protector, your hope, and your peace in life. He gives you peace, real peace peace that the world can never take away, a peace that passes all understanding. Indeed, the Jewish Messiah would be the one who would bring true peace to mankind, not that false peace represented in a political peace, not the false peace when two countries who hate each other agree to stop killing each other for a while in a so-called peace treaty. No, those temporary types of peace never last. You know that. Those temporary types of peace are not real peace at all. No, God would use His Mashiach to bring the kind of peace that you would never have taken away from you. A peace so great that it would cover everything in life, everything in death. A peace that would assure a person that when they stand before God, their sins have been completely cleansed from them. That God would not judge them for their sins, but that He would pass over them in judgment because of His Messiah who would have made that forever atonement for all who believe on them, on Him. For all who believe in Him, their sins are atoned for, they're covered. And my brother and sister, you know the Pesach Haggadah. You know the story. This is what Passover was foretelling. Yes, it was a memorial. 
But just like you and I make memorials to things in the past, God knows the future just like we know the past. It's all clear to Him. He made a memorial before it was going to happen because He knew it was going to happen that time when He would become a man. Now, when the Jewish scholars looked at the prophecies about the Messiah in the Tanakh, they were a little confused. <laughs> they were a little confused. I get a little confused sometimes, like before I drank my coffee in the morning, you know what I mean? And maybe before I drank that second cup too. But yeah, honestly, they didn't fully understand what the prophecies were saying. And that's because some of the prophecies in the Tanakh spoke of a glorious ruling and reigning king messiah who would defeat his enemies and restore the jewish people and save the world bring peace to the world and in closing we're going to cover this little argument right here other prophecies in the very same tanakh spoke of a suffering servant messiah who would suffer and be killed as an atonement for the sins of the people and examples of this suffering servant messiah are given in isaiah 53 how he would give his own life, and in so doing, he would make many righteous, truly righteous. And we covered last week why Rashi is incorrect in saying that, no, this is the land of Israel that is that suffering servant. No, chapter right before it, a few verses before it, in Isaiah 52, verse 13, God says, just as many were, uh, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance, so my suffering servant's appearance will be more marred than any man. He's speaking to Israel, talking about somebody else. So the suffering servant can't be Israel when he's talking to Israel about somebody else being the suffering servant, you see. So that was Rashi's interpretation. Last week we covered that. That suffering servant, all those, all those Jewish sages before Rashi and many after believed that that was talking about the Messiah. Now, Rashi, your answers might be okay for those Christians, but we know what's really going on, and that is talking about the Messiah. Somehow he would suffer. And they thought that there would be this suffering Messiah. And Psalm 22 even said that they pierced my hands and my feet, and this is a Messiah speaking. And I said for Tehillim, Batanach, in the book of, uh, in the book of Psalms, in the, in the Tanakh, speaking about the suffering that the Messiah would go through. So since those two prophecies, the ruling and victorious king messiah and the suffering and killed messiah can't be speaking about the same person they thought the jewish sages thought the tanakh must be talking about not one messiah but two messiahs and they reasoned that there would be a ruling victorious messiah and they named him moshiach bin david messiah the son of david because david was a powerful and victorious king so this ruling and victorious king would be considered to be a king from David's lineage. And that suffering servant Messiah, they called him Mashiach ben Yosef, or the son of Joseph. Because remember in Genesis, Joseph was sold away into slavery into Egypt. He suffered, and he suffered in the jails there, and he suffered all this persecution there from his brothers there who sold him into slavery into Egypt. And so these sages called this suffering servant Messiah, they said, Mashiach bin Yosef, Messiah the son of Joseph, because he's the suffering one. He's not like Mashiach bin David, like the, the ruling, reigning king, powerful king Messiah. He's Mashiach bin Yosef. He's the suffering servant Messiah who's going to suffer and give his life for the sins of the people. And they called him that because Joseph in the book of Genesis would suffer and be mistreated. But yet in the end, somehow they knew that God would still use him because that's what happened with Joseph. Now, of course, these were smart men, these Jewish sages. Their reasoning was perfectly valid. If the messiahs were just normal men, their reasoning was valid. Because a normal man would be born into the world, would live a number of years and accomplish some things, and then he would die, just like everyone else. But what if the Messiah came the first time as a suffering servant Messiah, and as the prophecies of the Tanakh had foretold, he would give his life to atone for the sins of mankind and then died? Okay, now we need to talk about this. You see, in Exodus 12, God had told the children of Israel that only a perfect blemish-free lamb could be used for the Passover, Pesach, sacrifice. 
He told the children of Israel that the blemish-free lamb would be selected from among the flocks and that they would, that they would live with the families for a while, for a few days, and each family would select its lamb and it would stay with them for that time. Then on Passover, the blemish-free lamb would be sacrificed and the blood of that spotless blemish-free lamb would be put on the doorpost of the house. And then here's what you need to remember. God then said to the children of Israel, when I see the blood of that blemish-free lamb on the doorpost of that dwelling, I'll pass over that place in judgment. What was that? That spotless lamb was to be a sin offering, an atonement for the sins of the people in that dwelling. And when God had seen the atonement that had been made with an acceptable blemish-free sacrifice, he would pass over that place in judgment. He would pass over that dwelling in judgment. But the key thing you need to remember here is that the sacrificial lamb was used as a sin offering, an atonement for sin. That sacrificial lamb had to be spotless, blemish-free, free of defects, in other words, perfect. That lamb had to be spotless to be an acceptable sacrifice to God. Well, in the same way, when the suffering servant Messiah came, he could have no imperfections. What I'm saying is, he could have no sin. Now, the reason why a sacrifice for sin had to be free from spot or blemish is that sins are taken from the people and put on to another. The one that would receive the sins had to itself be free of sin. In other words, a sinner could not be an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of others. Just like a person without money cannot pay the debts of another person who is also broke. <laughs> only the clean, only the sinless can be the atonement for the sins of others. And just like the Passover story foretold, the coming of the Messiah and His mission, the Messiah who would come and take away the sins of the people through His own atoning death, He Himself would have to be without sin. Now here's the problem. Because God had said in the Tanakh, in Asefer Teilim, the Perik Abasre, the Pasuk Shtaim Shalosh, in Psalms 14, verse 2 and 3, everybody has sinned. That's what God said. He said, look at what He says there in verse 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside, He says in verse 3. They have become together corrupt. They have become they have together become corrupt. And then look at how he ends verse 3. There is none who does good. No, not one. Uh-oh. What's God going to do? There's nobody who is completely without sin. So there's no atoning sacrifice that can take away the curse of sin from mankind. And if our sins aren't taken away, we cannot be allowed in God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, because God is a holy God and heaven is the place of His throne. It's a holy place and no unrighteousness can exist in heaven. God's holiness would destroy any unrighteousness that's in His presence and that would destroy you and I with it. And this is the principle that's stated throughout the Tanakh. It further says in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. It's pretty clear. And God said, I know what I'll do. I myself will become a man. I will live among them for a while. Remember that Passover lamb living among the people for a while before it was sacrificed as a sin offering? God said, I will live among them for a while and I'll not sin. Then I myself will become the atoning sacrifice that will cleanse their sins and restore them to me. And they will be given everlasting life in my kingdom with me forever because they have been clean. Their sins have been forgiven. What's God saying? He's saying, I will rescue my children and restore them to the everlasting life that they were created for because I love them. And that's exactly what the Tanakh says about God thinking about this in chapter 59, verse 16 in the book of Isaiah. He says, He saw that there was no one and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm gained salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. His own strength made him go forward as a man. And he 
resisted the sins and the temptations and he kept himself pure to be an acceptable sacrifice and his righteousness sustained him and death couldn't hold him because he had no sin. So God himself became the man who would be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Let me say that again. God himself became the man who would be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. Because he lived a sinless life and then he allowed himself to be killed as an atonement for the sins of mankind. And all who even simply believe that he did this and confess that this person that he became is the Messiah and the Lord. All who believe on him will be saved and given everlasting life in heaven. That's how much God loves you. And it is the greatest love story ever told. Well, now maybe you're thinking, okay, Pastor Stephen, that was Mashiach ben Yosef, the suffering servant Messiah. But what about that ruling and reigning king Messiah, Mashiach ben David? What about him? Hmm? So remember the Jewish sages thought there would be the two Messiahs, the suffering servant Messiah and the ruling and reigning king Messiah. And they were correct in a way because the Tanakh gave prophecies about both of these Messiahs. So the rabbis thought, well, there had to be two men who were two messiahs. But what if there was only one man who was the messiah? And he was both of the messiahs. Well, what are you talking about, Stephen? Well, the suffering servant messiah, Mashiach bin Yosef, and the ruling reigning king Mashiach, Mashiach bin David, could have been one man. They say, now wait a minute. Suffering servant messiah died. How can he also then become the ruling reigning king messiah? Very good question. There's a very good answer. Here's the answer. Remember that God Himself became the Messiah. All the glory is His. He became the man who would become the Messiah. Sin entered the world through a man, Adam, so it had to be atoned for and taken out of the world by a man, the Messiah. And also remember this, the man that God became, even though He was tempted to sin like everybody else was, he did not fall for any of those temptations. Here's what I'm saying. He had no sin. And since he had no sin of his own, death could not hold him. Because death is a result of sin. And he had no sin of his own. So since death could not hold him, he was released from death and raised from the dead. And he returned to heaven where he awaits for all who will believe on him to believe on him. And then he will return and reign as the King Messiah, Mashiach bin David. Hivanti, Mashiach bin Yosef, ve Mashiach bin David, otodavar. Achad. He is the one. Did you understand? Messiah, the son of Joseph, Messiah, the son of David, they're the same thing. They're the same man. Messiah, the son of Joseph, Messiah, the son of David, they're the same. He is one man. God brought us the victory. Makes sense, doesn't it? God is always the one who does the work and rescues us. God rescued his children from death, and he restores them to, be, to everlasting life like they were created for. As in everything else in life, my brother and sister, God is the answer. God himself is our Messiah. He's our anointed one. He's our savior. He's our atoning sacrifice. For his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that's why the Tanakh refers to him as Yeshuartcha, your salvation. Throughout the Tanakh uses that word Yeshuartcha, your salvation, speaking of your salvation, Lord. Oh, wait a minute, I hear Yeshua in there somewhere. Yeshuartcha. That's correct. His name, Yeshua, is throughout the Tanakh. You just looked at it wrong, you see. He's speaking about him, and it's right there, hidden in plain view. And that's why the New Testament, the New Covenant says that his name is Jesus, which in Hebrew is translated Yeshua. The rescue of God, the salvation of God. God became man to save you. And all who believe on Yeshua as Mashiach and, and Lord will be saved. Just like the prophet Joel said in the Tanakh, and it will come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's why we call him the unexpected Messiah. Because he was what the people were not expecting. 
Oh, everybody living in Israel knew that the time for the Messiah was come. They saw the prophecies in the book of Daniel and the Tanakh. They looked at the events already happened in Daniel's time, and they recognized that the time for the Messiah was near. But they were expecting a Messiah who was going to be a political leader, a king that would lead them to victory over the terrible oppression of the Roman army and the Roman government. They wanted a great military leader who would punish their enemies and restore the people of Israel to freedom where the Jewish people could live without fear. But God knew that the real need was for their spiritual lives to be restored. People never really thought about everlasting life anymore. And Yet the book of Genesis, it said that God created man in his image with an eternal spirit. People were created to live forever. People really never thought about that anymore. They were only thinking about the week that they were in, next month, next year, one day at a time. Sound familiar? Their vision and their goals were far too small. Yes, God would conquer their earthly enemies, but unless their sins were atoned for, in the end, death would still win. Death would still defeat the people, and they wouldn't live forever if they did not have their sins atoned for. But when a person belongs to the Lord, when they believe on His Messiah as Lord, God will take care of their physical needs and their earthly situations as well. When you believe on Yeshua as Mashiach and Lord, God comes to live inside you, walks along with you. And when you believe on Yeshua, you become a child of God and He will go with you and He will guide you and He will give you a peace, a deep peace, a peace that is beyond all understanding, a peace that the world can never take away from you. When you become a child of God, a child of God you can rest. You can rest because all of your battles are now in the hands of God. Because you're now His child. You can rest as a child of God. You can rest, child of God. You can rest. Have you believed? Have you put the blood of the blemish-free lamb on the doorpost of your heart so that God will pass over you in judgment? Have you believed? Today is the day of salvation. Today, believe and be saved. Amen. Why don't you give your life to the Lord today? Right now, if you call out to Him, He'll answer that cry and He'll answer you and rescue you from that darkness that you're in and He'll shine His light on your heart. You'll be given a new life and He'll change you into a completely new person. Throw all those past failures and sins and guilt away. You'll be made completely new and given a new start. And He'll give you everlasting life in heaven. And that's guaranteed and promised by God Himself. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord today and to receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. You could pray something like this. In fact, you could even repeat it after me if you'd like. Just say, God, I do want to know you. I do want to have this real peace in life. I believe on your son, Jesus, the Messiah, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I'll tell you something. God heard you. He's already started working in your life. And a little seed's been planted deep down in your heart. And over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful changes that God's making in your heart. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him every day in His Word. Talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do beautiful things in your life.